God in heaven, as we come before you, we thank you for your word, and we thank you uh, that you teach us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we get to come before you and ask these things. We pray that your spirit would be upon us, Lord, to, to learn more about you, to learn more about your word. Uh, we pray that you would guide our thinking, God, that wherever we are uh, in error, that you would direct us and guide us. We pray that your word would be, above all things, our supreme standard of what is true. So we look to it to tell us about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I want to do just a, a brief review and a little bit of a roadmap. Um, because we're... So we opened this series, right? We're, we're doing a series on church and community. And we opened this series um, with discussions of what the church fundamentally is. Um, the church is the body of Christ. Right? The church is his bride. The church is a temple that God uh, is building up for himself. And the church is a kingdom. It's his kingdom and it's a kingdom of priests. Uh, and then we pivoted to talking about some, some fundamental covenantal principles. So we, we first started off, what's the church? A few ways about how scripture talks about the church. We talked about some fundamental covenantal principles, um, covenant principles that apply to the church. Uh, and fundamentally, we began to, to unpack how these principles, these covenantal principles, are at odds with the world. Right? The world uh, has three basic orientations, um, generally. Uh, this is maybe an abstraction, but, th but generally there are three basic orientations. Uh, three ideologies that are going to forever be competing with each other. Um, the first is individualism. The second is collectivism. And the third is uh, biblical covenantalism. So there's three basic orientations. You're an individualist, collectivist, or a covenantalist. Um, last week we touched briefly on unity and collectivism. Uh, I don't think I was very clear last week, and I didn't have a great direction. Uh, so sorry for that. Hopefully today is a little bit more clear and a little bit more directed. Um, and we've already talked about individualism a lot. Last week, we started to talk about collectivism, um, but I think we should, we're going to do two things today. First is that we're going to evaluate collectivism a little bit more, uh, and hopefully a little bit more clearly. And the second thing that we're going to try to do is we're going to begin discussing biblical covenantalism. So the roadmap is we've talked about fundamentals of the church. We've talked about um, some competing ideologies, and we're going to wrap up with collectivism today. And then we're going to move into biblical covenantalism, which is essentially, I, I made that up, but basically, how does the Bible teach us to think about ourselves? How does the Bible teach us to think covenantally? Um, and so we've done a little bit of that, right? We've, we've compared and contrasted with individualism. Uh, we've compared a little bit with covenant, uh, collectivism. But there's, there's a few topics that we can start with as we start to unpack covenantalism a little bit more. So what we're hopefully going to start today doing is we're going to talk um, at least begin to talk about church membership. Uh, we're going to start talking about biblical covenantalism as a whole, and the beginning point will be church membership. Uh, so first, let's evaluate collectivism a little bit more. Um, so, comrades, what's collectivism? What's collectivism? Okay, you in life, uh, doing making decisions for what's good for the whole, uh, and not necessarily the individual. Okay. Okay. 
Mm -hmm. Their identity comes from being a part of this collective, this group. What's prioritized? Um, individual liberties or collective good? Collective good, yeah. So what's the greatest good in a collective society, a collectivistic society? What's the, the highest ideal, the greatest good? Right, Whatever's, whatever is good for the whole society. Uh, so compare that with individualism. What does individualism say? What's the highest good for an individualist? Himself. Yeah, whatever is good for me. Um, so who decides for the individual what's good for them in an individualistic individual? Who decides what's good for the collective? Okay. So let's unpack that a little bit. So Gary says that the person, that the, the collective, the whole, decides what's good for the collective. So how do you determine what the collective's opinion is? Majority, okay. Matthew? Okay, Matthew uh, just wants to skip all the steps and and go right to the end, but you're right. The collective believes what it's sold to believe. Who tells the collective what to believe? Yeah, the, the people in charge, the ruling elites. Somebody does, right? So collectivism is necessarily top-heavy. means that necessarily there has to be someone at the top telling the collective what to do and think and believe. Um, here's the problem with, well, what's the problem if the collective decides by majority what's good for the collective. What's the problem with that? And I mean, in terms of, in, in the self-isolated scheme of collectivism, why can that not be allowed to happen? Matthew? Okay. Yeah, there'd be disunity, there'd be division. Yeah, only good for the majority. Um, what happens if the collective decides it doesn't want to be a collective anymore? Right? What if, what if the majority vote of the collective, the majority opinion, the driving force of what's good for the collective says, we don't want to be a collective anymore? That, is that good for the collective? Yeah. Yeah, it, it falls apart. Right? It doesn't work. So collectivism, for it to work, has to be top-heavy. It has to be hierarchical. There has to be someone at the top who tells the collective what, what to do, what to believe, what to think. Um, in other words, someone has to be God. Someone has to decide in a collective society who to take wealth from and who to redistribute it to. Um, someone has to decide what's good for the collective and what's bad, uh, which means that collective cannot be ruled by democracy uh, because what if the people decide they don't want to be collective anymore? Or what if the majority decides uh, something that is not actually, you know, quote-unquote, good for the collective? Um, what if the collective decides to split up and everyone does whatever is right in their own eyes? Right, so whatever a collective is, 
Uh, it cannot be ruled by consensus of the people. It doesn't work. It's not self-sustaining. Right. Yep. Yeah, all the collectivist societies are ruled by a ruling elites, one guy or multiple people. Uh, and these people cannot be bound by the same rules as a collective. Right? They have to be above the collective, speaking into it, telling it what to do. So they can't be ruled. They can't be living by the same rules as the actual people in the collective. Another synonym for what all this system is called is tyranny, right? One person telling everybody else what to do, and you have to blindly listen. Um, what can, can you, besides Russia, China, North Korea, um, can you think of any examples in our world of collectivist societies or churches? Mm -hmm. So, how is it a collective? Okay, <laughs> but we're all Protestants, right? That's that's not necessarily the problem. In other words, think about Rome's theology and their theology of inspiration, of revelation. Uh, examples of collectivism today. The Roman Catholic Church, Gary said, he's right. So how does the Roman Catholic Church work? How is it a collective? Yeah, there's a guy at the top, Pope. Tells him what to do. And what happens if you disagree? Yeah. Um, you're not allowed to do that. Because what's so so obviously we hold something up as a standard and say this is this is our standard that by which we appeal to, right? God, um, and the Roman Catholic Church also holds up God, and yet how do they know what God says? Okay, the Bible, and we share that, right? We say yes, absolutely, the Bible. This is how we know what God says. Yeah, the Pope can, or in other words, another way to say it is, church tradition and the Bible are on the same playing field. They're same level. They hold the same weight. And that means that, how do you know what church tradition says? Well, the Pope. So the Pope has the same power, so to speak, as the Bible to dictate what is true and what's not. You, you might as well just call him God. right? You might as well just say, our standard, our standard of truth, is whatever the Pope says. Um, that's, that's pretty much tyranny. Right? Just because you also throw in the Bible doesn't mean that you're not actually reintroducing a false, uh, a false religion. Um, so why is collectivism appealing? Why do... <laughs> okay. But I don't think anyone's being sold... Collectivism saying, you could be the Pope, unless you're Mormon. Um, and then they're saying that you could be the, the god of your own planet if, you, if you're good, or something like that. Matthew? I think a lot of people, um, 
Sure. Yeah, exactly. The, the Roman Catholic Church promises, or at least on the outside, looks like they have unity. Um, the, the irony is that they, they talk about how divided and how many denominations there are in Protestantism. And there are denominations in the Roman Catholic Church, too. Um, and let's not forget that at one point in time, there were three popes all claiming to be pope. And that went great. Um, how do you know which pope is the right pope? Right? You have to, just because it looks like there's this unity and stability, there isn't actually. But it promises that. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church promises stability, promises unity, promises that you don't look at all the Protestants and how they quibble and quabble over interpreting the Bible and everyone's disagreeing and it's really just up, left up to the individual believer. And that just leads to the chaos come over to the Roman Catholic Church where there's established tradition. It's strong, it's stable, it's unified. Um, you don't have to worry about making sure about uh, what, how do we interpret, just listen to the church and they'll tell you what it says and you believe it and accept it. Um, and you know, as we all know, the Roman Catholic Church has not shifted in its theology at all over its 150, 1,500 years of existence. They've never introduced anything new or done anything different. It's always been the exact same. I'm being really sarcastic. It's changed a lot, right? It, it changed dramatically from even from the time that there was the first, well, whether you want to call him the first pope or not, um, the first person to be called the, the vicar of Christ, the universal vicar of Christ on, on earth, um, from that period onwards, there was drastic shifts, drastic changes, purgatory. Uh, what's the thing where if you put the coin in the thing, then the soul from purgatory springs, forget what those are called, indulgences, yeah. Um, you can buy your way out of pre-heaven or pre-hell, I don't know. Um, stuff like that. Just, okay, that's, that's new, and yet... They're trying to say, no, that's always been the case. Peter was the first pope, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, collectivism promises a lot. And so why is that attractive to people? Why are people looking at that, at those promises and saying, yes, that sounds good? Yeah. 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 There's security. Feels safe. Yeah. Steve's point that uh, we all we all feel deep down that we're not supposed to be looking out for just me. That we are supposed to be looking out for other people, serving others, doing good things for other people. Um, we all get that instinctually because we were made in the image of God and because that still exists, even though it's broken and fundamentally flawed. You look at the world, you look at even atheists, right, and, and their systems of morality. Um, uh, Christopher Hitchens, his whole push is this universal solidarity with, the, with other men, with other people, is kind of the reason why we do good things. Like, he can't get away from the fact that 
We should be doing good things for other people. There should be such a thing as generosity and service and love. That these are instinctual things. For him, he can't get there, really, without using convoluted systems that contradict each other, right? Because he's an atheist and because he's an evolutionist. So he can't actually prove that there is a universal standard of morality, but he knows there is. It just comes out in a different way. We all know this. We all know that we're not supposed to be... That individualism is not it. We all know it's not the truth. Uh, even though we like to believe it is, because at, at least for a little bit we get to pretend like I get to make myself feel good. And I think... So that, that's one side of it, that we all know that we should be, that we are part of something bigger. Um, but the flip side of that, I think, is, is people see, are seeing the fruits of individualism in our society. Right? If, the, if the individual is the heart of society, the greatest good is whatever's good for me, um, that means there isn't really a law above me. So why can't I become a woman? Why can't I marry a man? There's no, it's, it's whatever we want. And now we're living in a world where whatever you feel equals reality. Like that's, that's the kind of world, the, the kind of society, that's the natural, that's where individualism goes, is there is no standard of morality. Just do whatever feels good, um, even if it means it hurts someone else. So... People see that. They see the fruits of individualism. They see how it's falling apart. They see how an individualistic society like ours is crumbling. And they're saying, we need something better than this. This can't be, this can't be it, right? We need something better. And so collectivism promises heaven on earth, right? Marx promised a world where the individual workers freed from, from capitalist oppression to pursue whatever he pleases, which is ironic. Right? He gets to do whatever he wants, okay? Um, but he's, he quoted, or he said, uh, I could fish in the morning, hunt in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, and do critical theory at night, just as I have in mind, without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, shepherd, or critic. Right? It's a utopia that ironically appeals to individual feelings, um, but through a collective society, and the reality is that just don't work. That's just not how it works. Collectivism is not about individual. It's about uh, serving, ultimately, the ruling elites. So, individualism is bad. Collectivism is bad. What's our only alternative? It's biblical covenantalism. So there's, there's four principles that we've been laying out, that I was laying out for the last few weeks. Um, four principles of covenantal thinking. I've said them a few times. I don't know if I've ever asked you guys to repeat them. Do you know what the four principles that I've, I've laid out are regarding biblical covenantalism, what it means to think covenantally? Matthew? Yeah. Yeah, that's the first one. There are two, there are two covenants, and you're in one or the other. And that means that, you're, that you are under one mediator, Adam or Christ. Okay. What do covenants do?
Let me ask it a different way. Um, where does community come from? Yeah, covenants create community. So there's two options, dead in Adam, alive in Christ, and covenants create communities. So if you're in, a, in Adam, that's your community. If you're in Christ, that's your community. What's your identity tied to? To your community. How is that different from individualism? decides the identity of the individual? You do. Yeah, I decide my own identity. Biblical covenantalism says no. Your identity actually comes from the covenant community that you are in, specifically from the mediator that you are under. That's your identity. So how is that different from collectivism? Collectivism says your identity comes from the collective. Well, in individualism, your identity comes from yourself. And in a collective is, in a collect, wow, it's too many isms. Yeah, so in a collective, in a collective, where does your identity come from? The collective. And how is it, how is it given to you? Okay, that's, that's in the covenantal scheme. In a, co in a collectivist scheme, where is your, how is your identity? Yeah, it's coerced. It has to be. There's no other way. Right? That's the only way that you get a bunch of people who are all different to be the same is if you coerce them or force them to have the same identity. Right? It's why the North Korean missile parades are always packed. Their stands are full. People dress the same, look the same, talk the same, and have to worship the same uh, dictator. But that's through coercion. Does God coerce us in covenantalism? Yeah. He transforms you, in other words. The difference is that uh, Kim Jong-un cannot transform you. He can force you to, to believe or try or at least speak the way that he wants you to speak. But a dictator cannot actually transform you. So God doesn't coerce us. He doesn't, he doesn't force us into uh, the covenant with Christ. We are created in the covenant with Adam. And if, to get to the other side, right, to cross that gap, God transforms us and brings us there. He doesn't, he doesn't course us. He transforms us through new creation. It's not coercion. It's not force. It is grace. It's, it's transformation. So God is not imposing an external identity upon us. He is working inside to produce a new identity inside. Does that make sense, Michelle? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We don't choose. We don't choose. 
God transforms us, but that new life that he gives us wants to please God. We are thankful that he did that. And not in the kind of way where we're thankful for our dictator. In the kind of way where we are truly grateful that God has transferred us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So your identity is tied to your covenant community. And that means that in order to come from Adam to Christ, something radical enough has to happen to us, the same as a dead body coming back to life. Right? That has to happen. Transformation, resurrection has to happen in order for us to receive that new identity. So that's the, that's the difference. Um, and then the fourth principle, um, that wasn't very clear on, on what I was trying to say. I forget exactly how I phrased it, but uh, the fourth covenantal principle is that our God is our ultimate authority. God is our authority. It's not man, it's not the Pope, it's God. And how do we know what God's will is? How do we know what God wants? He told us. He said, this is what I want. So scripture is the revealed word of God. It's the revealed will of God. It is our only rule for life and faith. And contained in it is the doctrine of salvation and everything we need. This is our standard that we appeal to for everything. And God is, is our ultimate authority. So the difference between individualism, right, is that I'm my ultimate authority. Um, I get to decide which parts of the Bible I like and which parts I'm going to ignore. Uh, in the collectivist, there is an ultimate authority above the individual, but it's 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 the Pope or it's Kim Jong Un or it's or it's somebody, some class, some somebody has to be the authority to tell the collective what to believe, right? And it has to be imposed by coercion, but. Because we are in a covenant, and we're in a covenant with God, God is our Lord, he's our king, he's our authority, and we're here because he's transformed us, and because he's given us a will that wants to obey him. Right? So we don't come to the Bible saying, well, I guess I have to figure out what God wants now, and I don't want to do that. We should, Lord willing, on our good days, Come to the Bible like, this is God's word. This is food for my soul. This is, I want to know what God wants so that I can do that, so that I can be that, so I can be transformed even more to be more like my Savior, Jesus. Um, right? no, one, no one goes to Kim Jong-un and says, I want to know everything you want. <laughs> Tell me everything you think about everything. No, but we want that with God because he truly is transcendent. So, briefly, we don't have a lot of we don't have a ton of time, um, but we're going to start talking about biblical covenantalism. Um, so we've talked about individualism and collectivism a lot, and we may still do comparison. We'll still do comparison contrasts as we go along, but biblical covenantalism or thinking covenantally, um, basically, all I'm trying to say is, what's the Bible say? How does the Bible tell us who we are, how we act, all these things? Uh, it can't be me, and it can't be this collective, right? It can't be the OPC that's going to tell you what to think. It has to be God. It has to be his word. 
Um, and so if we're going to start to talk about what that means to be in a covenant with God, to be covenantally uh, attached to the Lord, um, what all this means, uh, I think a good way to start is we can start talking about church membership. Um, because church membership is kind of the, the doorway into covenantalism and how we are to think about our, our relationship to a church uh, and to other believers. So let's first ask a couple questions, compare and contrast. Um, can the idea of church membership arise out of individualism? Can the idea of church membership arise out of individualism? In other words, will an individualistic church naturally arrive at the idea of church membership? Why not? Okay. Yeah, everyone's think, going to think differently. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Right. Yeah. Who's really deciding what? Matthew? Right. Yeah, you, I think you're right. You're onto something that if you're an individualist, you're going to naturally seek out a church that affirms what you already believe. Of course. Yeah. And you're just, you're just going to bounce, bounce, bounce. But, um, no, I think Matthew's, Matthew's right. We're going to seek out churches that affirm what we already believe. Um, and that means that we're coming presupposing an, an authority. Right, we're, we're coming presupposing what's already true. Uh, so what happens, like Gary's bringing out, if I go to a church and it, it seems like, man, we all think the same, this is great, we're all on the same page and they're affirming whatever, and this is so good. What happens when, I don't know, either the leadership changes or, or they start preaching a different message or they say something that you don't agree with and that makes you uncomfortable, What's going to happen? Yeah, yeah, you're just going to leave. Maybe not right away, but that's the, that's probably where it's going to go. Right, you're going to leave. Um, church membership then is that's that's too strict. Right, that's who. Where do we get that? Even that's just dogma. That's just you know people thinking that the church has to be this this place of stricture, and you're told what to believe and all this stuff, and, and you have to submit to authority. I'm going to submit to, to those guys, those guys who are sinners. I'm not going to submit to them. Uh, I had a conversation with someone, and and I brought up Hebrews 13, 17, right? Obey your leaders and submit to them. And they really didn't want to to think, 
or agree that in any way that church membership or being a part of a church and under its authority was what the Bible taught. So he said, well, that means Paul. I'm supposed to obey Paul or submit to Paul. It's like, I, I don't think that's what he's saying. Um, how about the flip side of this? Can the idea of church membership arise out of collectivism? Yeah. Yep. It is what it's all about. Um, absolutely. Why or why? Why is membership so important to churches like the Roman Catholic Church? Instant <laughs> uh, saying money. You're not wrong. Um, You're part of the collective. You're inside. Um, does the, the Roman Catholic Church also teaches that there is no salvation outside of the Roman Catholic Church at all? And if you're not part of the Roman Catholic Church, sorry, too bad. Um, how else is is church membership in a collective such as the Roman Catholic Church? How else is it twisted? Uh, how is it twisted? Twisted. Yeah, how is it bent, disordered, Michelle? Well, also, if you're a member, your outside behavior may or may not really affect your membership. But as long as you're doing what the church says, you can go, you know, Monday through Friday, you're going to be Okay. Sure. Yeah, it's very formal, doesn't penetrate the heart. I think you're right. Does anyone happen to know what the uh, what what the part of the Roman Catholic profession of faith is? I, I looked it up. I was curious. And it was about exactly what I expected it to be. Uh, you, it, when you want to become a believer and be a part of the Roman Catholic Church, um, you have, the, I mean, it's like this super intense period, there's like multiple stages, and even when you get through all the stages, you're considered like a, a, a baby Christian, so to speak, a neophyte or something like that. Um, but at the very start, part of the confession, part of the profession of faith publicly is Nicene Creed. Um, okay, great. Uh, and then this, I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and proclaims to be revealed by God. Did you hear that? I believe and profess all that the Holy Catholic Church believes, teaches, and proclaims to be revealed by God. Uh, now, if that's not, if that ain't collectivism, I don't know what is. That's not, you must conform your beliefs to what the, the collective says, which, by the way, is the Pope, um, by what the Pope teaches, um, and the hierarchy and the ruling elites, whatever they tell you is true, you have to say yes and amen. You, that's part of your profession of faith in, in God is I'm gonna, I believe whatever this guy says. Whatever it is.
Praise God. About time. Now, about 1,500 years too late, but uh, praise God. So, there's, there's a lot more that we can say. Um, suffice it for today that uh, church membership, it, it cannot really arise out of individualism. It can arise out of collectivism, but it's twisted. And you hear that in that profession of faith. Um, that that's a necessary part of, of any collectivist church. Um, but biblically speaking, there is covenantal church membership that is neither individualistic nor is it collectivistic. It is covenantal. Um, and, and we'll just summarize it today, and then we'll talk more about it next week. In Romans 12, Paul says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. We are many, and we are one. We are individuals, and yet we are united with each other in Christ. And then that's, that's the basis for church membership. So we'll talk more about that next week, um, so stay tuned. Are there any last questions or confusions? I hope that was more clear. Last week. No? Okay. Um, well, let's pray and ask God to uh, prepare us to meet Him in worship. God Almighty, as we come before you, we thank you. We thank you that you have uh, transformed us from death to life. Because, Lord, we know that we would never choose you if you gave us the option. I thought, Father, we thank you that you have saved us that you've transformed us, that you've given us hearts that want to, to worship you, hearts that want to obey you, that want to come before your word and submit to whatever it says. God, I pray that you would lead all of us in this, that you would lead us in unity as a church, that you would grow us in the bonds of love and peace. pray also that you would prepare us as we come to worship you, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, Lord, to receive your words, uh, that we would uh, that we'd come before you with joy and singing and praising. And that we ask that you would feed us today. Feed us, Lord, uh, the gospel of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.